0: Okay, here we are on April 9, 2015 at the Science Fiction Club meeting talking about Spock's world in memory of Leonard Nimoy, who passed away last month. Um, Sorry, actually February. Um, So uh, we'll go around the room and see what people thought about the
1: book. Well, I may as well start. Um, In case I sound like I'm half dead, I'm not. I'm just tired. (laughs) Anyways, uh, I read it years ago and didn't realize that until I started reading it a few weeks ago. And then, even then, I read it twice because there are two different ways to read it. You can either read it, all of the Enterprise stuff, which is the story, or all of the Vulcan sections, it's the history part, or just reading it straight through and alternating in the way that it's it's um written originally i found the history kind of monotonous but it's it is in a way historical because it's i think the first time anybody ever tried to write a book about the history of the planet vulcan but i love the story i think one of my favorite characters is a chiming spider lady <laughs> just thought she was wonderful and i thought mccoy was was great in this also and i thought kirk was was good but i especially thought mccoy was lots of fun Um, and generally i i like the book of course i'm a i'm a trek fan so you know what can i say
2: yeah I i read it straight through i didn't jump back and forth and i thought it was very entertaining very interesting also i I thought the historical part of Vulcan was, was interesting, especially the, the very beginning when it was a, almost a paradise with all the trees and how the, how the people lived almost a, you would say, almost as if they were in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eden. And then after the cataclysms and, and their life greatly changed, and it was interesting, those those creatures that lived under the sand, too. I found that interesting. And of course, the, poli- the enterprise part with the politics and It made me think almost of uh, negotiating with Iran with regard to trying to come to a deal. Uh, And and I like McCoy. I thought he was really very very good, very insightful, and he really did a lot in the debates and everything. So I thought it was quite an entertaining book. Well, since there's a gap
0: here, I'll just put in... uh, It was one of the worst books I've ever read um, or attempted. We never finished it. We got up to about three hours and 57 minutes left which means we read two-thirds of it. And uh, Lissy didn't dislike it as much as I did, but she can speak for herself. But it was one of the worst books I've ever read or attempted. Um, it was terrible. Um, the, uh, I mean, the, the history was boring enough, but... We get the history of the galaxy. First we get an info dump, and in the middle of our info dump we get another info dump. Spock's talking about the history of Vulcan, and then we go to the history of the galaxy. And, of course, finally, an hour later, at least it felt like an hour, it might have been close to that, um, we get the history of the formation of the Vulcan solar system. Then we get, uh, you know, more fluff about an... um, a party that was on the Enterprise, and Spock's character, and the character of Vulcans in general, was, but especially Spock, was was twisted out of all recognition. He's now a spiritualist, apparently, when he had no interest in that at all on the show. He um, was either a theist or a deist in the book when he absolutely rejected that all in the show, and there are episodes where I can point to where he, he says that. Um and uh, so overall, um, I thought it was just a oh, pretty bad. It was certainly the worst book I've read for the club, and certainly in the top five of the worst books I've ever read. Lissy,
3: um, I'm going to finish it. Evans not, but um, I just love spending time with Kirk and Spock and McCoy. I did like McCoy's curiosity. Um, I, I wasn't crazy about the Vulcan culture. They were they were pretty unpleasant people, um, and and that part where they were in the beginning when they were like following this character, he he went here and he went there. I mean I don't know who that was, but and then they had this woman character who invented the wheel and everything else. I mean she just she invented too. Many, I I don't like these stories about. Primitive cultures where one character invents all these things that were really probably invented hundreds of years apart in different places. So I, I didn't feel that I just didn't take to the Vulcan um, his the Vulcan history that much, and I thought the the T'pau, not T'pau, um, to not to pow to that you know that she was um, doing a lot of this for spite just made her such such an awful character. Um, one thing about this author, she let a lot of her um, interests shine through. She you know made it so that Spock had Scottish ancestors. And Kirk had Irish ancestors. She she was really into Celtic things, and then the stuff about the Vulcan spirituality did come quite as a shock to me that um, some of them believed in God. Um, I, I just wasn't as pleased with the book as I had hoped to be, but I didn't think it was you know near as bad as as Evan thought. And while we're on the subject of Star Trek, I did put um, in Bookshare, you'll see a book called Chekhov's Enterprise, and we can talk about that later. And also a Star Trek novel that was published in 1968, and we can talk about that later, too.
0: You're thinking of The Wanderer. Think about Dion, uh, The Wanderer. That song kept running through my head when we were reading that section. Anyway, I'll see you. Well...
4: I think this was one of the best books we've read. Um, In fact, maybe the best book we've read. I'd forgotten how much fun it was to... I, I just really enjoyed the whole book. And if you like The Chiming Spider, you need to look up The Wounded Sky, and I hope you can hear
0: me. Yeah, you're coming through real clear.
5: Well, this is Sherry. Um, I'm kind of in the middle. I liked the book. Um, I really like Star Trek. I've seen all the shows several times, but I, I haven't read many of the novels, so I kind of felt lost. Like, I didn't even know who Spock's wife, what her name was, let alone that that was his wife, so that was a surprise. I didn't know. The history, I found, it might have been better. I thought it was kind of me, because I didn't know who these people were, and I thought maybe other people that were heavier trekkies might have this might have sounded familiar but the history didn't seem continuous it seemed to like you you would learn about some characters like that woman who insisted they go attack this mountain to get the water and and then all of a sudden i don't know if the next section were descendants of hers it just didn't seem continuous to me i totally got lost in the history so i tended not to like it quite as much i did like the enterprise stuff um, the care it's you know I always like those characters and they're always fun. One thing I noted about this author is that she seems to and I know a long time ago when I used to be able to sit close enough to the TV to see Star Trek they do raise their eyebrows a lot but she mentions it a lot of times I, I started like, being distracted because I'd be waiting for somebody to raise their eyebrows and, and even though I know the characters especially Spock would do that uh, that in, in, in no other book would she be able to get away with mentioning raised eyebrows as much as she does in this book um, but overall
6: I, I, I didn't mind it I thought it was pretty good Well, uh, I'm sort of in the middle too um, I didn't really know what to expect I haven't read I don't guess I've ever read a Star Trek novel, but I was—I I love Star Trek. Um, I thought that from a technical point of view, that there was almost no plot, and that there—that it was really basically thinly disguised bunch of scraps of short story-ish stuff that they pasted together with. It was supposed to be a story. Um, Now, having said that, there were absolutely brilliant parts to the book, too. And in particular, the thing about um, Spock's dad and his life before the, you know, that goes up to the present. I thought that was absolutely fascinating and very emotional for me. Also, um, other people have mentioned the Black McCoy speech at the thing... What fabulous writing! And there were some other places like that too. Spock was Spock did a pretty decent job in, in the at the end too. But I thought it was really kind of um, disappointing because there was so much that was just kind of boring. Well,
7: I didn't like the beginning history. I mean, had she cut some of that short? It would have been better, I think. Um, I like the part... One of the parts of the history that I liked was where um, the two... The girl and the guy got married, and she looks over. She's about to kill herself, and she realizes her husband is still alive. That was one of my favorite parts about the history. My favorite part about the... I don't know. I guess I could call it the actual storyline is where the spider comes down and bites that guy. <laughs> that was, he's in the middle of his speech, blah, 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 blah. Ah! Or something like that. McCoy was very McCoy ish in this book. He was extremely McCoy ish. Was, was, he was great. Um, so I guess I would say the history, I, it was okay. Some parts I did like. Some parts I did. I almost, I almost skipped um, the historical parts, but I didn't. Um, but the book itself was good. I actually liked Sarek when they talked about Amanda and Sarek's marriage. I liked that better than, than this one.
2: What I didn't understand is um, Spock's wife, I forget her name, or ex-wife or whatever, what, what she had said that Spock had did something very grievous to her, or, and that caused her to, you know, to um, cause the insurrection, in a sense, or try to stir up the people against um, remaining a part of the Federation, basically out of spite towards him. But I wasn't clear as to what he had done to her, or what she imagined he had done to her.
4: There is is an episode in the original episode, Star Trek called a mock time, where Spock is. It turns. um, It turns out that Vulcans may uh, well Vulcans in general um, are almost like salmon. They have to breed at a specific time, and. Spock takes McCoy and Enterprise down to Vulcan. It's the first time, you know, we actually get to see Vulcan. And to T'Pring tricks Spock into fighting Kirk. And it's a fight to the death. And uh, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, McCoy manages to prevent the... Spock from killing Kirk and Spock basically releases her so she kind of gets bit by her own plan and I don't really know what happened after that but uh, apparently she blames Spock for not behaving the way she expected him to
5: well you didn't really spoil anything Uh, they pretty much That's what they tell you in this book, too. So that's good to know that was from an episode. I didn't remember that at all. And for a Vulcan, she sure is pretty emotional. Um, This is the same author. We read a a Star Trek book a while ago, and this is the same author, isn't it? Because I thought the other one was much better than this one.
1: Yeah, that was Doctor's Orders, and that was written probably about six or seven years after this Uh, spock's world because spock's world was really one of the very first star trek books that uh, was written in the late 1980s when all of this you know people writing books about the show started to happen i think that was generated mostly because of the movies and the next generation coming on tv and stuff and it got people into you know wanting to write fan fiction so that was kind of what happened with that but yeah, I agree that Tupring was really emotional. And I thought that was very uncharacteristic of a Vulcan, especially one who was a, a full Vulcan, not half Vulcan, half human.
0: Well, the whole book was uncharacteristic of Vulcan. I mean, when they secede from the Federation, then uh, what did Spock say? Then they're the, you're dead to us. Not even humans behave that way. I mean, if a if a country doesn't want to be a member of the EU, for example, or or another organization they're not dead to them they just don't have a trade agreement or they just don't have a, they don't have commerce between them they they're not dead to them that that just made the plot so ridiculous. what plot there was, as Deb pointed out there wasn't a lot of of it oh boy anyhow, but aliens would react totally
4: differently uh, you know you're Humanizing an alien race—I don't find it uh, strange that they might just want to say, "Go away and leave us alone."
0: They're Vulcans. They're not xenophobes. At least they're not. Why would that be logical? It just doesn't make sense. It's not logical to be to either you either associate with someone, or in a in as a member of the Federation, or they're dead to you. That doesn't sound logical. How's that logical?
4: Vulcans aren't necessarily logical. Uh, they put a big thing on it, but the behavior of them, you know, throughout the series hasn't always been totally logical.
6: Yeah, and there are places in several of the of the shows that I've seen where it's pretty clear that um, the Vulcans are fairly xenophobic in a lot of ways. I mean, not. Um, Not to the point that is in this book, but definitely they think that human beings and even Spock thinks that human beings are a little bit on the
8: illogical side. I know Vulcans have put a premium on mastering emotions. I think it's not that they don't have them, but that they take an almost zen-like approach um, to at least try to conquer their emotions speaking of which i was thinking of a different star trek novel the romulan way i believe it was called uh and they tell you how the romulan civilization started it was i think an offshoot of the vulcans they left because they were not governed by this sort of suppression or governing of emotions if i'm remembering it correctly
5: yeah, they said something in this book about the Romulans and and some somebody went and started them. I wanted to mention that in the chat window, Bob S., and I'm going to paraphrase because I can't read the screen that well. I just listened to it with Jaws, but Bob S. said that he his microphone isn't working, but he enjoyed the book. And Vicki says that she enjoyed the book even though it was somewhat of a patchwork quilt, which I think is an excellent description, and that she loves uh, hanging out with the... Uh, Kirk Spock and McCoy, and Vicky also recommends the book I Am Not Spock and the book follow-up book called I Am Spock, and also a book called The Fire and the Rose, which I'm not sure what that book is.
1: Well, I have a couple of things to mention. Uh, I Am Not Spock and I Am Spock are on cassette. They're not um, available on Bard. In fact, I Am Not Spock was written in 1977. Uh, or at least it was published around then. So I don't know if it's ever going to be on Barn, although there are some books that that are, that were written back then. Um, Also, David, you are correct, definitely. That was The Romulan Way. Boy, that was a good book. (laughs) About a, um, um, just to summarize what it is, it's about a... um, a uh, kind of an ice spy sort of thing where somebody from the Federation of a Lady wants to, uh, or is assigned, to go into the Romulan Empire and pose as a just an ordinary worker doing stuff. And uh, the whole purpose is for the Federation to learn more about the Romulans. However, she turns native, and so in the process of her turning native, you get the full story of how the Balkans and the Romulans came to be who they are. And it, it was that that was an amazing book. <laughs> so yeah, just wanted to comment on that one.
8: I wanted to say the history did drag in this book just a bit, but I'm reminded just a bit of the way Ben Bova uses little chunks of information and history in his grand tour series, the ones named after the planets like Saturn and Jupiter and Titan, well, Titan, Saturn's moon. And he does that, but I, I always thought he was careful not to overdo it. And this w- book we just read was one of the, to me, I know Evan said it was one of his worst, but to me it was one of the better written Star Trek novels because many Star Trek novels are short, much shorter than this, and they're just sort of formulaic. They're they're You know, they're just not done well. They're just cranked out at um, an enormous volume to capitalize on the interest of the various series and the whole explosion in the Star Trek universe, which um, I guess you're right, was brought about by the movies. And probably because Star Wars was such a big hit in the late 70s, so they had to make a Star Trek movie. I did want to ask the Romulan way. I read that, but I still am amazed they didn't realize the woman, I think her name was Teresa or something like that, was human, because she would have looked un-Romulan.
1: Yeah, I think there must have been some kind of surgery or, or something to modify her appearance. Um. But yeah you that was a that was an amazing book <laughs> anyway i I think um, I was thinking, as I was listening to everybody commenting, I think the book, if it had been been divided into a history section and you know maybe having a lead up to a second part where you know here is the story, um, things would have moved along much better. There's, it's supposed to be continuous if you like I read the history part uh, portions of it a couple of times. And I thought, well, I can kind of see where it's supposed to blend, but she wasn't quite successful in doing that, but I think if they'd had the story in one section, the history in the other section, that would have worked much better.
2: I was wondering where you mentioned the spider some people i don 't remember that what part of that was the uh you know, if I were to go back and go through the book to try to find that area, which I don't remember at all, is that towards the middle or towards the end of the book, or exactly where it was that?
1: Well, the most memorable part of it is in the kind of in the middle of the book. It's in one of the enterprise sections where they're in court, and the trial or the whatever you call it is going on, and she's one of the speakers who speaks for um, keeping humans in the Federation and uh, i'm getting my books mixed up now i think because i've been reading books that are kind of similar about this but she's um she's really gutsy i just really (laughs) thought she was great (laughs) um but yeah it's lelia there is a there's a section as lelia said where she gets carried away in her speech and she goes over and bites this guy Well, and says, well, you seem to be alert enough right now, you know, because the guy's going on about something esoteric or something, something, and she just walks over and bites him right in the leg. <laughs> that was a great scene.
6: <laughs> yeah, that was a great scene. <clears throat> and if I'm not mistaken, she was the very first person that spoke uh, in, in the court. But now, I could be wrong about that. She, um, yeah, and she was then having a back and forth with some of the sort of stodgy people from the other side when that happened, when she goes and bites the guy in the leg. Yeah, she was on the Enterprise
0: before that, though, when um, when they were having that party and um, um, Kirk was talking to that recreational guy about the BBS. Oh, that's another thing. <laughs> the BBS. That is so um, dated. It's like um, um, she didn't... I mean, she wasn't. I mean, you put a BBS in your 23rd century. I mean, you don't do that. You you make your communication stuff a little less specific, so when it goes out of fashion, you don't look like an idiot. It's funny.
3: It didn't bother me because I don't know what a BBS is. Goodness so sake! With me, oh, I couldn't believe it.
5: Yeah, she was the first one that spoke, I'm pretty sure, so if you wanted to look for that. She was a good character, and I enjoyed the biting scene, too. Vicki mentions uh, in the chat window that she, uh, the religious aspect of the book, she's known people that have switched religions and been rejected by their families, um, so there was a bit of religion in here. And like Evan said, I was kind of, I mean, like I said, I haven't read very many stories, Star Trek novels, but I don't remember this Jatai in, in the Star Trek shows. But it could just be that I've forgotten it.
7: I have to agree with um, a few people, Deborah and Vicky. I love your your idea, the patchwork quilt. I love it, and I also like the short story ish um things. And yeah, I I when I saw BBS Evan, I thought I had read this book before, but. I don't. If I did, I didn't remember that part. And whenever I looked at the BBS, I'm like, wow, that's old! That's old! I mean, wow!
8: I agree about the BBS. I mean, that was before my time on the computer. I read about them. You literally dialed your modem and your computer dialed into somebody else's computer directly. There was It was like no internet. It was sort of like each website you'd have to do, you'd have to call up a phone number would be sort of. They were like Unix based. God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Talk about dating. It's like talking about gopher on the internet or Archie or one of those weird internet things before the web. Okay, two episodes that I can recall
0: where Spock shows his irreligion. First one, well, I'm not sure what order they were in, but the one called Obsession where Kirk and, where Kirk gets upset. well, he, that creature that draws all the red corpuscles out of people's bodies. They go down, he and another guy, Garavik, his name was I think, or something, they go down and plant this antimatter bomb with bait and then Scotty has trouble transporting them back on board and Spock says cross-circuiting to A and then he says cross-circuiting to B and they materialize on the platform and Scotty says thank heaven and Scott and Spock says there was no deity involved Mr. Scott it was my cross-circuiting to B which saved them. And then another episode with La'ndru and I can't remember the title of it where Scott, uh, Kirk is telling Spock about he La'ndru programmed a computer with all his knowledge but he couldn't give it his soul and Mr. Spock says predictably metaphysical I prefer the graspable the provable so, I mean, and then to turn him into some kind of, oh, I feel the presence of the one, or, well, God's just as good a name as any, and and all that, it was just a complete destruction of his character. I just think that's just, you know...
3: Right, she slipped there. She just...
0: But she made them all... Most of the Vulcans, apparently, have this. They can feel this presence. Um. So, you know, she just turned all of Vulcan into, you know, oh, brother... Anyhow, uh, but those are the two that I can remember. There might be others that I don't remember.
5: Yeah, I distinctly remembered that Spock wasn't religious, too. Were there Was there ever any mention of this Jatai on any Star Trek episode that anyone knows of, that any Vulcan felt this way?
1: Uh, it sort of grows into various uh, Star Trek series. Um, I, From what I understand, having... Heard some things about the movies and some reviews and stuff that there were times when Spock's quarters on the ship, uh, a small corner of maybe in the back of his quarters, looked a little bit like a shrine of some type. Um, and uh, on Enterprise, there is a kind of a big thing um, on, on the last um, season of that show where there's a lot going on on Vulcan. And has to do with Mount uh, Kalea or whatever the name of the mountain is. And there, it it grows and evolves over the years. So it's, it's a very subtle thing, but it does mature quite a bit throughout the Star Trek universe. And uh, so it's, it's there in the background. And uh, I don't remember much about it on... Uh, some of the other series, but especially Enterprise, it's grown quite a bit. And I think there was a little bit of it on um, some of the other series. Uh, Not so much Star Trek Next Generation though. Um, It's more in some of the other parts.
3: It wasn't in the original series though, Sherry, so that was a development that she kind of, I think, took on... uh, I think it just showed the author's own uh, preferences, and she got a chance to do some extrapolate, you know, some some adding and tweaking. But Spock certainly, um, a deity was never mentioned in the original classic 76 episodes, 77 episodes. Um, but this whole thing that, you know, just reading this book, which I am fin- going to finish has kind of gotten me to immerse myself back into the Trek universe because I really do love it, and I am particularly a fan of classic Trek and um, those books uh, most of the novels are not as satisfying as, as we would like, but on the other hand i I feel I'm going to look forward to reading some of them again just just to spend time with Kirk and Spock and McCoy.
0: Yeah, that Mac Reynolds book you're reading now, or oh, you just finished it. That was the first Star Trek novel, wasn't it? Right, the the written one in 1968.
3: I, I just BSO'd a, a, a Star Trek novel for um, Bookshare, which is um, Mission to Horatius. Horatius, and it it's just so much fun because it's pretty unsophisticated. It was written while the original series was still on the air. And you know how they have the rec room, which is so important in Next Generation and some of those series. Um, in in this book, it's called the ward room. And um, in this in this book, Chekhov is sort of trigger happy, and Kirk has to keep reminding him not to shoot shoot his phaser at anything that moves. And and they don't have the Prime Directive yet. He keeps calling it something like Starfleet or Order Number One says we can't interfere in cultures. So they hadn't even come um, up with the term the Prime Directive yet. So if you're on Bookshare, it was, I think it was just approved today. and Or if not, it will be soon. And, and you'll have a lot of fun. And speaking of... Um, and Chekhov's... Um, wrote a book it's a journal about the making of the first Star Trek movie and I thought it was marvelous Um, a friend of mine scanned it for me and I proofread it and Chekhov actually did keep a journal and Leonard Nimoy saw him writing on the set and he said what are you doing writing a journal uh you know about the making of the movie and and Walter Koenig says, "Yeah, but they laughed because Leonard Nimoy thought it was a joke. You know, he never dreamed that he actually was. He he was he meant it to be a joke, and it's it's kind of neat because you learn about um, the actor's insecurity about their parts and whether or not their characters are going to stay in character and whether they're going to be seen on the film or not. Um, he talks a lot about filmmaking and." And cameras and things that, like a guy might be interested in, or a girl who likes technical things. And he talks about being on a baseball team with other, um, in a league um, with teams from other TV shows, and describes, you know, how the different Star Trek actors perform in their baseball stuff. It's it's pretty wonderful. Um, So if you. I suggest that you look for Chekhov's Enterprise on Bookshare.
8: I wanted to say that I thought the Vulcan spirituality discussion we just had was interesting. I feel the way Evan does, but I feel that about the last movie that rebooted the whole series. I felt cheated somehow. I wanted to say that the book had some other interesting parts. I think this is the book, if memory serves, because I've read part of it now, but I had read it years ago. They talk about the moon, Tikut. It takes up a third of Vulcan's sky. I don't see how that... It's not so big. It doesn't pull the planet apart. And I did want to say, I don't know if you call it a soul, but Vulcans have, I think it's called a Vercatra. There was a novel maybe where Spock and McCoy get all mixed up in each other or something, and they have to go to this hall of records or something where each Vulcan, when they die, their Vercatra goes into some sort of little spherical um, a device or something that stores them. I'm not quite sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but it gave it a metaphysical dimension that I remember thinking was very strange for a Vulcan.
1: That was Star Trek II when Spock died, and Star Trek III was when his Katra had to be recovered from the Genesis planet. So that was the third movie when that happened. It might have been mentioned in other fan fiction Uh, other than the movies, and also there are a whole bunch of books written by various Star Trek um, people who uh, were involved in the movies, and there's Star Trek Movie Memories by Shatner, and then there's Star Trek Memories by Shatner. I have both of them, and uh, Star Trek Movie Memories was kind of hard to get a hold of, but I found it on tape, and I converted it to digital form, and it's probably about 12, 13 hours long. So the the book that was mentioned about just the first movie, um, there's a lot more detail to be had. I'm sure that you, if you go digging around on the web, you'll find it. Um, also, there were conflicts among the actors and among the, the various people that worked on Star Trek, whether it be the movies or whether it be the other um, in series or whatever. Um, there isn't much uh, that I can find about all of the other TV series, but I, I do have the last two films where they had the new actors doing all of the, the um, um, acting and, and replacing the old cast. Um, that was the one, first one came out in 19, uh, in 2009, and the other one, second one, into Darkness came out a couple of years ago, I think about three years ago if I remember correctly.
5: Uh, Vicky is asking what the name of the book that's Chekhov's journal and if um, whoever was talking about it doesn't know the name, maybe you could spell the actor's last name so we could search for it by, by that. There was
4: a book about the Katra vault. I remember it. I don't remember the title. I think the The actor Chekhov was played by Walter Koenig, I think it's K-O-E-N-I-G, and I believe the title of the book was Chekhov's Enterprise. That's right.
2: I'm curious to know, um, in the course of the the series and the the conventions, there was a lot of emphasis with the Klingons and even making a Klingon language. Uh, Was there anything similar to that with the Vulcan language?
1: I don't think so. Uh, I think the Klingon was so attractive because it was so exotic, and it, it uh, kind of started when actors would make sort of strange, weird noises, and uh, eventually I guess somebody decided to create a language out of it, and that kind of just took off. I think it started to take off when the first movie came out, In 1979, if I remember right.
4: They actually had to invent a language for one of the later Star Trek movies. Um, I think it may have been the Undiscovered Country, because I remember the guy that wrote the language saying he came up with a language that didn't have the verb to be in it. And the first thing they put in the um, movie was the quote from Shakespeare, to be or not to be. So it kind of threw a monkey wrench into his language.
8: That sounds fascinating. I know that The character of Worf, I believe, did a lot to promote the whole Klingon thing, though I don't envy that actor taking hours to get into that elaborate uh, makeup and costume pieces. Klingons seem to have changed quite a bit from the original series to the next generation. I think something had happened to their planet or something, and then they got better.
1: Yeah, their planet kind of went through an equivalent of Chernobyl, and uh, it was... uh, said in the undiscovered country that they only had about 50 years to survive if they didn't do something about it so that's kind of what made them change but it's like anything with the series things just evolve and change you know, like Spock was really, really emotional in the first few episodes of the original series and also in The in, um, the Cage which was the premiere um Episode, and eventually that got toned down quite a bit. So a lot of stuff, fan fiction changes, and the characters change. And I mean, there's a contrast even between Spock's world and Sarek. In Sarek, Amanda, who is Spock's mother, is dying, and in um, Spock's world, she's not dying. She's very much alive and well. But to Pow is the one who's dying. So, <laughs> go figure. The
4: other thing I liked about this book, and they couldn't do it with the TV ser- the original TV series, and I don't think it was until The Next Generation and Worf that they started giving the Klingons an alien appearance, was that they had um, more of the alien members, like the... Um, Oh, the rock-eating creatures, the horda, and the glass spider—you um, never got to see that in the movies because they never couldn't afford the makeup.
7: Um, I actually like the part—the part too that where um she trans um, T'Pau actually transferred her. Now, I forgot, Katra, I think, into Amanda. That was interesting. And then, of course, the vote was like two billion to whatever. And then, while they were talking about it, they said, well, look at it this way if they had voted against the Federation, they would have kicked the eldest. That's where the historical thing came from, because, um, goodness, all through history, they had an eldest. And so Amanda was basically the eldest there. Although, you know what? I don't remember. That wasn't even mentioned in Sarek, was it? She wasn't. Amanda wasn't not the eldest. That was the first time I ever heard, th- and the last time that I've ever heard that mentioned. Is that true, or does anybody remember that in, in uh, other books besides this?
8: I don't remember it either. It's my concern with all this fan fiction novels and everything being written. I hope somebody's kind of keeping track of it because you could write a novel and then somebody else could write one that contradicts yours – and I'm not sure there's much you can do about it, unless Paramount get you know the company that owns it would get on you. And I used to like reading the Star Trek novels just to see what wacky alien thing they would come up with. There was something in one book called a Glazifer. It was literally a being made of glass, and if you brushed it against it or touched it, it discharged an electrical. St- thing, and it changed its color for a split second. And I mean, we've seen Ferengis and Pandralites and those rock creatures, the Horda. I mean, somebody really worked over coming up with these trippy, different beings.
1: Yeah, I remember reading one book where Kirk was standing outside talking to a mud puddle about philosophy. I thought that was wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah, you could have alternate Star Trek histories, like you have alternate histories of humanity you could have alternate Star Trek histories where you have the actual history as you know the Canon whoever decides what that is, and you could have all these other books that say what if what if uh, um, um, i don't know what if the Klingons had won against humans or what if the Romulans and the Vulcans got together you know by the way he Spock does mention that the Vulc- Romulans are an offshoot of Vulcans in the in the book, in the I think it's called Balance of Terror or something. I can't remember where uh, Kirk and uh, that Romulan captain, who was actually the same actor who played Sarek in the series, uh, played the Romulan captain. Um, okay, what is it? Well,
5: somebody that really wanted to be a troublemaker could just kill off Kirk McCoy and Spock and see where that goes.
0: Nobody, well, William Shatner, I think it was, said nobody ever really dies on Star Trek. You can just go back in time and pick them up again and resurrect them again. So, you know, it's, that's one of the reasons Bob, you know, it's kind of, we knew Vulcan wasn't going to secede from the Federation, so there's no dramatic tension there, really. Um, that's another reason I didn't think the book was very good. I mean, there's no real dramatic tension with that. We know Vulcan's not going anywhere. Um. And... And what Bob Askey said about reading these novels, you know they're going to work it out, and there's no, you know, Scotty's going to get the the engines fixed in time and whatever. So go ahead, sweetie.
3: Well, one of the things that people love about Star Trek is that ultimately it's upbeat, and ultimately it suggests that we're going to get better, um, expand, learn to get along. And so, you know, that's in keeping with the, with the, it, it's Star Trek is not noir you know it's that's right it you know and it's it's um, um, another thing uh, in pocket books is licensed by Paramount so they had to to stay pretty well within certain guidelines fan fiction which is published um, it's they it's not illegal as long as they don't um, publish more than a certain number of books But in fan fiction, they call it alternate universe. And so if, you know, so they can do anything they want if usually it's, but it's designated as alternate universe or um, Mary Sue. Um, There are certain categories.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't believe what they do with Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Don't even discuss that. (laughs)
8: I was going to say you mentioned alternate Star Trek history. I believe this eighth movie begins, somebody has obviously fiddled time, and the Borg are running Earth. There are 40 billion people living on Earth, and the air doesn't have much oxygen anymore. It has high amounts of fluorine and carbon dioxide, and I think they jump back in time and change something. Time jumping always gives me fits, and they fix everything. So it was a sort of what-if, and I believe it was movie eight. Can you imagine the Borg running everything? Eesh.
5: So, if I'm understanding you right, there are some Star Trek books that were sh- sanctioned by Paramount. How can is there some way to tell which ones are those? Because I'd like to stick to those for a while, anyway.
3: I think Pocket Books had a, had a contract with Paramount. So, if you read the Pocket Books novels, those are supposed to be somewhat. Um, in keeping with Star Trek canon.
1: But even among those, you're going to find contradictions and confusion because, you know, they couldn't control everything. Like, they couldn't control when different people were going to die. You know, you might read one book about, as I said, about one person's life ending, and then you read another book, and it's ten years later, and the person's still alive. I mean, there's no way to control everything.
4: I don't think that the Star Trek powers that be, for lack of a better word, were quite as controlling as the Star Wars uh, thing, because I think they actually trademarked Star Wars, and you can't even use that in the title of a book or as a se- part of a series without, um, oh, Lucasfilm or someone saying. Yes, you can do this. And I hate to interrupt, but I think we ought to start talking about next month's book because we're almost out of time.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm not as familiar with the Star Wars universe. But as I understand it, they are very controlling about what gets published and whether it agrees with and that it must agree with the canon of what's gone before and what Lucas decided You know, pretty much. Um, But you're right. Um, We'll go on and see what we're going to read next month.
6: Just one really quick thing about the publishing. I believe that at the beginning of the book, I remember it saying that this book was copyrighted by maybe uh, Paramount Pictures. So. Um, they definitely
8: have their finger in this one I'll say really really quickly in the Star Trek universe most of the people it always ends happy but in the next generation they did kill off Tasha Yar the security person which always started me this big entity Aider or something and I do want to not slow you up so you can get to the next month's book
7: well I know there was a couple of suggestions although I think you guys said the Neverness is not on Bard right
0: that's right it's on cassette not on Bard yet
2: now, the one that Mary mentioned in one of her posts, uh, I forget the name, which I added to my wish list, sounded like it be an interesting book to read. Do you recall, Mary, which one that was?
1: I mentioned a lot of stuff. <laughs> I don't remember which one you're talking about.
7: Was it something like The Quiet? I was going to say The Quiet Game, but I know that's not it. That's another book. But something, The Quiet Something.
1: Oh, The Quiet Invasion. Yeah, I've got, I've got all of Sarah... Sattels or whatever name is um, her books on my on my stream. I haven't read any of them, so I have no idea if they're any good or not.
2: Yeah, I think that's that might have been the title that you, that you mentioned. It sounded interesting for the description.
1: It's Sarah Zettel and I'm trying to find her book right now. Playing no. tell. Yes.
0: Yep, and there's Aaron Jones.
1: Okay, see if I can get this to work. At the crucial
9: juncture when Dr. Helen Failia learns that funding is being withdrawn from Venera, her permanent research colony for Venus, an alien artifact is found on the planet's surface. The ensuing human contact with extraterrestrial life forms yields repercussions that are far from benign. 2000. From the book, Jacket, one of the most acclaimed young voices in science fiction, Sarah Zettel breaks fresh ground with each new release. Her debut work, Reclamation, won the Locus Award for Best First Novel. Her second, Fool's War, was a New York Times notable book of the year. Now, in Sarah Zettel's grippingly dramatic new novel, a clash of high ideals and good intentions may trigger a thunderous war of stellar proportions. Everyone wants something from Venus. Dr. Helen Thalia wants her orbital research city, Venera, to become a permanent Venusian colony. Dr. Grace Meyer wants to vindicate her theory of alien life. Techno-artist Dr. Veronica Hatch wants an inspiration. The UN wants to keep space colonies under its control, while covert rebels on Venera want to liberate the Moon and Mars from the UN. All any of them need is a miracle, which is unlikely on an uninhabitable world of lethal heat, deadly pressure, and poison winds. But that's exactly what Venus yields, when a robot probe discovers on its surface a ruined building that promises proof of ancient extraterrestrial life. Then, the humans are contacted by other, quite living aliens. And for these avian beings, known as the people, Venus is a true miracle. For the people's world of home is dying, struck by a mysterious plague, and a refuge must be found. After centuries of desperate exploration, the people have found only one planet that can sustain them, Venus. And the aliens can't understand why humans would claim a world they can never use. Factions divide the people. Young Ambassador Tisha insists that they hold to their spiritual ideals of peace and cooperation. Ambassador D'Soum demands that they survive at any cost. And while the scientists on Venera see the people embodying all the dreams of contact, Earth sees an alien horde intent on overrunning a chunk of its solar system. Now suddenly, a planet named for a goddess of love is primed for war, even as three females, Tasha, Veronica, and Helen, Diplomat, artist, scientist, try to keep the search for life from becoming the death of three worlds. About the author.
3: Yeah. Mary. Okay. Next, next meeting, could you play, maybe turn your speed da- slower, because I could I could understand maybe half of that at the most. It was really
6: gibberish.
1: Well, I'm surprised I only had it up to two. <laughs> That's uh, fast for me. Um but I can understand it. I'm surprised that I mean, she talks fast, you know, so it's kind of hard to, to judge how fast this is going to go.
8: She and Martha harmon speak very quickly. Laura Generelli can, too. That book does sound good. I think I read Restoration. I think each of her books is in a separate universe, so you don't have to read them like in a series. I'm so tired of young adult books being dystopian series. I, that's why I've got series on the brain.
7: I, vote well, we read The quiet. Invasion. I keep wanting to say The Quiet Game. I'm going to be looking for The Quiet Game. <laughs> invasion. Invasion. Think of aliens.
0: You okay. Yeah, okay? Yeah, it sounds like it might be interesting. I'll give it a shot. Uh, how long is it? I mean, I'm sure it's probably not very long. I'm just curious. I'll go grab it after the meeting.
1: I'll, I'll play this part. Oh. should have known. apply should have known. Just a second.
0: We've got five weeks this month, by the way, So, because um, we're not going to be meeting until May the 14th. Uh, so we've got five weeks. Um, I've got, uh, let's see, I think it's August we don't meet for another five weeks also, and I've got a book picked out for August already. Uh, but it may not be on bar by then, so maybe not. We'll see.
5: Well, I always round up when I put things on my wish list, so I have 15 hours. So it's 14 it's between 14:30 and 15 hours long.
1: It does say around 15 hours. Hey, that's
7: perfect for this month
5: then.
1: Um,
3: I vote for I vote for this book, but I was just curious: is it young
1: adult or is it just
0: normal adult?
1: Uh. Yes, yeah, normal adult. Yeah,
5: that's why I mention it on the list, is because it's the one of the few non-young adult sci-fi books I've seen on Bard for a while.
1: I
7: don't want to grow up.
5: <laughs> okay, I will end the recording here, uh, bef-
0: but before I do that, I will say, we're going to do The Quiet Invasion by Sarah Zettel, or Zettel, I'm not sure which it is, but uh, I'll have it in the Newswire tomorrow, and I'll put that out, and I'll check to see if it's on Bookshare. Uh, and I'll put all that in the newswire, and that'll be uh, tomorrow. But uh, our next meeting is May 14th, 2015, same time, same place.